Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm on. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 164 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, the pre-launch. From the early days of space, virtually all of the trajectory data coded in the Mission Control Center originated from the Mission Planning and Analysis Division. This division consisted of several hundred mathematicians and scientists supported by a large array of high-tech contractors. John Mayer was the boss and Bill Tyndall was the deputy. In late 1968, Tyndall was reassigned as a staff engineer for George Lowe. In the restructuring after the fire, Lowe gave Tyndall the task of uniting the entire Apollo team, civil servants and contractors, into a working group to determine how to use the hardware and software most effectively to achieve each mission's objectives. Tyndall's genius was his ability to focus on issues and coax diverse people to work together. He combined the friendliness of a puppy with a comic wit. His operational intelligence was brilliant. Bill Tyndall swung into the Apollo 8 mission with zest. While mission control was slugging it out with Sherall on Apollo 7, Tyndall was holding daily meetings to work out how to navigate to the moon and how to get into and out of lunar orbit. Allegiance to Tyndall did not come easy for the trench. For a while, Fostek's team believed that Tyndall was really doing their job. Fostek's deputy, Phil Schaefer, and Llewellyn complained about these turf issues, while Tyndall tried patiently and persistently to gain their support. By the time of Apollo 8, however, the trench had become Tyndall's most zealous group of converts, actively supporting, debating, and testing his plans, carrying into the training his decisions and mission rules. Mission control seemed to be in a race against themselves, every event and decision converging on the launch date. But Tyndall was unsinkable. Only a month away from Apollo 8 launch, 
he was still arguing with Frank Borman on the best way to navigate the return journey from the moon. To the men of the trench, Apollo 8 was the mission. It would be their greatest achievement. Living in the world of pure mathematics, they were the first generation fully at home with computers. Incredibly young dreamers and visionaries who were venturing in their imaginations and theories with the crew into the unknown, working at the very edge of knowledge and primed to overcome any difficulties that came their way. Their work, coded into computers and plotted in piles of charts and graphs littering their consoles, was the foundation for every computer instruction in the Saturn rocket and aboard the spacecraft. The trench and the trajectory designers were totally dependent on the millions of lines of code that they wrote in a variety of computer languages such as COBOL and HAL. These computations would hurl the Saturn toward the moon and then would swing the command and service module into lunar orbit. By late November, with a month to go until launch, Borman and his crew were working seven days a week, spending three or four days in the simulators at the Cape and coming back to Houston for meetings with the mission planners. So demanding was the pace that they had less time than they wanted for exercise, and they were a somewhat tired crew by the time Lyndon Johnson threw a bon voyage party for them in Washington. As the fall of 1968 wore on, apprehension surfaced once more within NASA. Would the Soviets try to beat the Apollo 8 to the moon? Due to the latitude of the Baikonur launch site in Central Asia, their lunar launch window would open early in December, well before the U.S. launch window. The weeks passed with no news from the Soviet Union. By the beginning of December, everyone at NASA realized, with great relief, that there would be no Soviet circumlunar attempt in 1968. The field was clear. Now it remained to send Apollo 8 on its way. On December 10th, with only 11 days to go until launch, Borman, Lovell, and Anders flew their T-38s to the Cape for the last time. From now on, they would live there in the crew quarters. Each man had a small bedroom and shared a living room, a conference room with maps of the moon and the stars on the walls, and a dining room that was something like a ship's mess hall. The decor was strictly Holiday Inn, but there were compensations, not the least of which were the high-calorie meals served up by a former tugboat cook named Lou Hartzell, brimming with steak and potatoes and mile-high sandwiches. Access was highly restricted to protect the men from last-minute illnesses. The sign at the entrance to the crew quarters read, quote, No one with a cold or symptoms of a cold may pass beyond this point. The three men settled in for their last days on Earth. Occasionally, they had a chance to go for a run or to work out in the nearby exercise room. They reviewed the flight plan 
and received briefings on the readiness of their spacecraft and the Saturn booster. And, above all, there were the daily sessions in the simulator. At times, Apollo 8 seemed to be an exercise in switches and valves and maneuvers, not the first flight away from the Earth. But, on December 20th, the day before launch, Borman's crew had a visitor who brought home the historic impact of what they were about to attempt. Charles Lindbergh, one of the most enigmatic figures of the 20th century, emerged from his retreat to visit Borman, Lovell, and Anders in the crew quarters. Forty-one years after flying solo across the Atlantic, Lindbergh appeared tall, tanned, and surprisingly fit for his 66 years. Accompanied by his wife, Anne, herself an accomplished pilot and author, Lindbergh arrived to have lunch with the three fellow flyers. To most of the astronauts, Lindbergh had been a boyhood hero, and Borman was no exception. Now, in the quiet of the crew quarters, it was just one flyer talking to the other flyers. Gathered around the table with Lindbergh and his wife, Borman's crew and their backup shared questions, recollections, and humor. They were fascinated by his accounts of meeting with Robert Goddard, whose experiments with liquid-fueled rockets in New Mexico had foretold the space age and fired the imagination of a teenage Jim Lovell. Goddard had conceived of flights to the moon, Lindbergh said, but was daunted by the fantastic cost of the venture. He had estimated it might cost as much as a million dollars. With that, the room erupted in laughter. Lindbergh asked Borman's crew about the navigation system that would take them to the moon. Then he told the astronauts how before his own trip, he and a friend had gone to the library, found a globe, and measured with a piece of string the distance from New York to Paris. From that, he had figured out how much fuel he would need for the flight. Lindbergh asked how much fuel the Saturn V rocket would consume during its climb into space. One of the astronauts did a quick calculation. 20 tons per second. Lindbergh smiled and said, In the first second of your flight tomorrow, you'll burn 10 times more fuel than I did all the way to Paris. Eight miles away, the Saturn V towered above pad 39A, some 363 feet tall, about six stories higher than the Statue of Liberty. The Saturn was more than three times the size of the Titan missile Borman and Lovell rode in Gemini 7. It was far and away the most powerful rocket ever flown. The crowning achievement of Werner von Braun and his team of rocket engineers at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville. For now the Saturn stood empty, but overnight, even while Borman's crew slept, technicians would ready it for departure. By morning, its enormous fuel tanks would be filled with super-cold propellants until the rocket would contain the explosive energy of an atomic bomb. Someone estimated 
that the thrust from the booster's first stage engines at liftoff would equal more than twice the hydroelectric power that would be obtained if all the rivers and streams in North America were channeled through turbines. Everything about the Saturn V was grossly out of scale with the rest of the world. For example, each of the five F-1 engines that powered the first stage had an engine bell measuring 12 feet in diameter. At liftoff, those engines would deliver a combined thrust of 7.5 million pounds, about 160 million horsepower. Three separate stages would do the work of pushing Apollo 8 off the Earth toward the moon. The first stage alone, nearly half a football field long, would burn half a million gallons of kerosene and liquid oxygen in just two and a half minutes, cutting off at a height of 40 miles, and then it would fall away. The second stage would fire for just over six minutes until its supply of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen was spent. By then, Borman's crew would be 120 miles up, and all that would remain would be a three-minute push from the third stage to place Apollo 8 in orbit around the Earth. The third stage would do its best work three hours later, when Borman's crew would execute the trans-lunar injection maneuver to break the bonds of Earth. For now, the Saturn stood in the embrace of its steel launch tower, waiting for the launch window to the moon to open. Evening twilight revealed the moon's thin crescent growing briefly in the west. Anders went out in the parking lot with a couple of visitors to look at it. At nightfall, the floodlights at pad 39A came on, turning the Saturn into a huge glowing monument. In the crew quarters, Frank Borman lay awake in his room, confronting his darkest fear. It wasn't blowing up on the Saturn being stranded in lunar orbit, or being burned to a cinder in re-entry. Some people had wanted him to make a tape in case he didn't come back. He had scoffed at that idea. Sure, he had some anxiety, who wouldn't have, preparing to go to the moon for the first time. But, if he thought he wasn't coming back, he wouldn't be going. Borman was afraid of one thing, that they would be in Earth orbit and some malfunction, however small, would arise, and the managers in Houston would cancel the lunar mission right there. He would be stuck with the alternative mission, ten long days in Earth orbit doing nothing but keeping the spacecraft going. He hated the thought of it, and as the night dragged on, while technicians worked under the floodlights of Pad 39A readying his booster for an early morning launch, Borman prayed not that he would come back from the moon, but that he would have the chance to go. Frank Borman's sleepless night came to an end at a few minutes past 2.30 a.m. when Deke Slayton came to the door to awaken him. The night was clear, Slayton told him, and the weather at liftoff set for 7.51 a.m. was expected to be good. Minutes later, after undergoing a final medical exam, Borman, Lovell, and Anders sat down to their last meal on Earth, 
the traditional astronaut's breakfast of steak and eggs. Deke Slayton was there, and Al Shepard, along with backup crewman Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Scientist astronaut Jack Smith and the man who had envisioned this mission, George Lowe. Years later, Anders would remember the conversation as decidedly unremarkable, that his mood was very matter-of-fact. When this brief earthly ritual ended, the three men headed for the suiting room, their technicians wearing surgical masks as part of the pre-flight health quarantine were waiting to help them into their spacesuits. Someday suits like these would protect astronauts on the surface of the moon, but on this flight they were merely a precaution against a loss of cabin pressure during launch. They were also fireproof, thanks to a pristine white covering of glass fiber beta cloth coated with Teflon. Hidden from view were layers of insulation, pressure restraints, special joints, and cables to facilitate motion when the suit was pressurized, all of which made the suit seem less like a garment, but more like a wearable machine. Each of the three astronauts, clad in long johns, climbed into his modern-day suit of armor. It was all familiar from test and practice runs. Next, the men donned communication hats resembling the headgear of a World War I flying ace. Oxygen hoses were mated to metallic blue and red connectors on the chest. Then came black rubber pressure gloves joined to rotating rings at the wrist of the suit. Finally, a clear bubble helmet was lowered into place and snapped onto a metal neck ring. At that moment, each man was a self-contained universe. Aside from the occasional voice of a technician in their headsets, they heard only the sound of their own breathing. They felt cool oxygen flowing past their faces. For a time, they rested, letting the pure oxygen purge their bloodstreams of nitrogen. Then, at last, it was time to go. Toting portable oxygen units, they headed down a long corridor to the outside with stiff-legged strides. At the entrance to the flight crew training building, they were greeted by the glare of television lights and a small crowd of well-wishers. Only a hint of applause penetrated their bubble helmets as they boarded a special transfer van for the eight-mile ride to Pad 39A. Here's the clip. Apollo sat on launch control at 3 hours, 21 minutes, 27 seconds and counting. The spacecraft test conductor now has given a go for crew departure. We expect that astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders will be coming out in a matter of a few minutes. Test conductor Dick Prophet has advised that the prime crew is now uh, leaving the suit room and we should expect them downstairs ready to uh, board their transfer van in just a matter of... Uh, a short time. We are standing by uh, here in the control center for the crew departure at this time. All other aspects of the mission are go. This is launch control. First Frank Borman, away from uh, Frank, also Jim Lovell, and the final man aboard the transfer van, astronaut Bill Anders. 
They're being joined by two suit technicians, and we expect the door on the transfer van to be closed shortly. Astronaut uh, Deke Slayton, Director of Flight Crew Operations, also aboard the transfer van. He'll drop off here at the uh, control center. The transfer van now departing from the main space. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, three hours, four minutes, 42 seconds and counting. As we look out the windows here in the firing room, we can see now that the transfer van is just passing the park position for the 9.8 million pound mobile service structure that was moved back from the launch pad earlier in the count. That mobile service structure is some 1,700 feet from the launch pad, so we expect the astronauts to be arriving now at the pad in a matter of minutes. All still going well with the count. This is launch control. Mark, T-minus three hours and counting, T-minus three, and we are proceeding. Uh, astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders making their, uh, completing the end of their trip to the launch pad. We expect they'll be up on the pad apron shortly. Their transfer van will park on the west side of the launch pad. That is the side closest to the press site, and we now see uh, on our television uh, here that the transfer van is, in fact, backing up uh, to the elevator that will take the astronauts up. The astronauts first go up one elevator through a vestibule inside the launcher. This is uh, inside the mobile launcher itself, where they then uh, go to a high-speed elevator that takes them to the 320-foot level. The transfer van now backing up on the west side of the pad. We expect uh, the prime crew will be coming out shortly. We logged the time of their departure uh, from the crew quarters at 4.32, and now the astronauts are departing from the van. Uh, we log it now at uh, 52 minutes past the hour. All three astronauts now getting aboard the first of two elevators that will take them to the 320-foot level and their Apollo 8 spacecraft. Now being joined by two suit technicians, gate in the elevator closing, and we expect it will be going up shortly. As reported, this first elevator takes the crew to the A level, which is a middle level in the mobile launcher. They walk uh, through a short vestibule where they arrive at uh, the two high-speed elevators uh, that are used to carry them to the 320-foot level. The astronauts will be taking elevator number one to the 320-foot level. They've now come out of the first of uh, the two elevators. They're now going into the vestibule, and we expect they'll be uh, catching their second elevator shortly. The purpose of going inside the mobile launcher uh, is, number one, of course, this is where the high-speed elevators are located. Uh, number two, it's also the location for a chute that would take the astronauts to an underground blast room in the event of an emergency condition that caused them to leave their spacecraft uh, an emergency condition that would give time, however, to get them down the elevator and into an underground blast room. So the astronauts now proceeding to the high-speed elevator. We expect they'll be up at the 320-foot level and the Apollo 8 spacecraft in a matter of minutes from this time. Uh, the countdown still proceeding normally here in firing room one, where the control of the count is being handled for this launch. We're still aiming toward our planned liftoff of 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is launch control. The Saturn V stood next to its launch tower, brilliantly lit, its tanks full of cryogenic propellants spewing plumes of vapor into the pre-dawn darkness. The sight of it filled Borman with awe. 
Accompanied by a suit technician, the three men entered into the service tower, and within that complex of steel girders, massive fuel pipes, and machinery, they boarded a small elevator and ascended past the Saturn's huge first stage, then the second and third stage, to the 320-foot level. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control at 2 hours, 55 minutes, 38 seconds, and counting. Astronauts Frank Foreman and Bill Anders now going across swing arm 9, the top swing arm at the launch pad, and, of course, the access arm that attaches to the Apollo spacecraft. They are accompanied by one of the two suit technicians, astronaut Jim Lovell remaining in the elevator with one suit technician. Jim sits in a chair in the elevator while his two fellow pilots go aboard the spacecraft. Once Borman and Anders are aboard the spacecraft, Lovell is then called to the white room across the swing arm. Uh, the process of boarding the spacecraft, the spacecraft commander, Frank Borman, will be the first to come aboard. Borman and Anders now have arrived in the white room and will be going aboard the spacecraft shortly. The spacecraft commander goes aboard first in the left-hand seat, and then the lunar module pilot, Bill Anders, will be the second pilot aboard in the number three seat. Jim Lovell is then called to the white room, and he is the third and final member, of course, to come aboard the spacecraft. We're standing by for crew ingress at this time at 2 hours, 54 minutes, 25 seconds and counting. This is launch control. The astronauts walked across the access arm to the small white room. First Borman, then Anders, climbed into the spacecraft, assisted by the closeout crew. Jim Lovell, meanwhile, waited alone for several minutes outside the crowded white room. Within the metal gridwork of the access arm, from this lofty perch he gazed down at the most powerful rocket in existence. This is what he was thinking. Uh, when we were told that we were going to go to the moon, we were planning and we are training and we are doing everything. You know, sometimes you get into a project that you really never quite see the end. You're working hard, you forget about the, the final part, the, the completion. And that to me was sort of uh, the way I felt. We're going to the moon, we're training this, we're doing that, we're learning something else. And then it was on the day of the launch, before light, it was still dark when the three of us went up to the gantry. Now you have to remember that there's no one else around except a couple of nervous checkout people. The rocket itself is filled with five and a half million pounds of high explosives. Everyone else is a comfortable three and a half miles away. And as my two companions were the first to go into the spacecraft, where the gantry is some 330 feet tall, there's a bridge across there, they walked across it and they went into the spacecraft. I was left alone, fully suited up uh, and breathing pure oxygen. And I looked at the night and I saw these lights come down, and was, this was the press corps that was manning the, the press sites at that particular time. And then I looked down and I saw the ground, and I looked at the press corps and I said, these people are really serious. We're going to go to the moon. And you know, it suddenly dawned on me that this was not another Earth orbital flight. This was the accumulation of the training we had done and the decisions we had made that unless something in the last, in the next couple hours happened, this spacecraft and this rocket are going to take off and we're headed for the moon. Now we return to the pre-launch with Jack King. Two hours, 49 minutes, 20 seconds and counting. The spacecraft commander, astronaut Frank Borman, is now aboard the Apollo 8 spacecraft. 
We had it logged over the sill at 4.58 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Frank is now checking in with spacecraft test conductor Dick Prophet on some communication checks. Astronaut Bill Anders, the lunar module pilot, the man in the number one in the number three seat, now standing by to come aboard. And Bill Anders is now boarding the spacecraft. The time we have is two minutes past the hour, 5.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bill Anders now coming aboard. Jim Lovell standing by in the elevator at the 320-foot level. We expect he will be called to the White Room shortly. Lovell, the command module pilot, sits in the middle seat and is the last of the three uh, pilots to come aboard. Bill Anders is now aboard, and we're standing by for the arrival of the command module pilot, Jim Lovell. Then Lovell joined his crewmates, sliding on his back into the center couch. He lay still while the closeout crew hooked up oxygen hoses and communication lines. Strapped in fully suited, he had almost no room to move. He was literally rubbing elbows with his crewmates. To his left, Borman lay before the gauges and readouts for the Saturn V. He would keep a watchful eye on the booster's performance during the ascent into space. To Lovell's right, Anders manned the controls for the spacecraft's electrical and communication systems. From the center couch, Lovell would operate the command module's onboard computer and monitor their trajectory into space. Here's Jack King. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control coming up on two hours, 43 minutes and counting. Astronaut Jim Lovell, the third member of the crew, now is aboard the spacecraft. We had him logged across the sill at 5.07 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Factually, we have four astronauts in the spacecraft at this time. In addition to the Apollo 8 crew, astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, Astronaut Fred Hayes, the backup lunar module pilot, also is aboard the spacecraft. Hayes is located in a lower equipment bay that's in front and below of the command module pilot's position. That is astronaut Jim Lovell. Fred Hayes will remain in the spacecraft for a while. Uh, he helps uh, strap in the astronauts uh, once their suits are pressurized. And also, uh, he checks a few switches uh, during uh, the countdown procedure. Uh, Hayes works with uh, spacecraft test conductor Dick Prophet in checking several switches. Uh, the reason uh, he is aboard for this purpose is because of the location of the couches at this time and the fact that the suits will be pressurized, astronaut Jim Lovell uh, cannot reach uh, several of these switches that are in front and below uh, as far as his position is concerned. So in reality, four astronauts are aboard, but Fred Hayes, uh, a member of the closeout crew, will be coming out uh, in a few minutes from this time. All three astronauts aboard, our countdown continuing. Uh, we are still go for the mission at this time. This is launch control. This is Apollo Saturn launch control at T-minus two hours, 34 minutes, 57 seconds and counting. Uh, all three Apollo 8 astronauts aboard their spacecraft, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, now uh, talking back and forth with the spacecraft test conductor, Dick Prophet, who's located in the control center back in the main spacecraft operations building uh, here at the Kennedy Space Center. This is the control room for spacecraft operations. 
It ties in with the crew here in the firing room at the launch control center and, of course, with the astronauts at the pad. We have a fourth astronaut aboard at this time, backup lunar module pilot Fred Hayes. It appears he's now coming out of the spacecraft, as a matter of fact. Uh, Fred's job inside was to be in a lower equipment bay in front and below of astronaut Lovell, who sits in the middle seat. Uh, because of the location of the couches at this time, uh, Fred uh, did uh, check a few switches uh, working with the spacecraft test conductor. Uh, it appears that he is now out of the spacecraft, and our checkouts continue. All three astronauts are going through checkouts in the environmental control system in preparation for bringing oxygen aboard uh, their uh, suits. The oxygen uh, within the suit loop uh, they breathe pure oxygen uh, within the spacesuits themselves. And, of course, once we close the hatch and pressurize the cabin, the atmosphere in the cabin is a 65-35 combination. That is 60% uh, oxygen and 35% nitrogen. Finally, it was time to close the hatch. Rookie astronaut Fred Hayes, who had been inside the spacecraft checking switch positions when Borman's crew arrived, now wiggled underneath the couches and through the open hatchway, then offered his hand in farewell. The technicians swung the massive hatch closed and locked it, sealing the three astronauts inside. It was 5.34 a.m., T-minus, 2 hours, 17 minutes, and counting. Here's the clip. This is Apollo Saturn launch control at T-minus 2 hours, 15 minutes, 45 seconds, and counting. The spacecraft test conductor now has directed the closeout crew to close the hatch. The hatch actually uh, was closed at 34 minutes past the hour. The crew still working on the latching uh, mechanism at this time to lock it in. They're working on instructions from the spacecraft test conductor as he follows the various sequences in the countdown. The door actually was closed at 34 minutes past the hour, but we are still uh, working on the procedures to assure that the hatch is completely secure. Once again, uh, hatch closure at 5.34 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.